Good morning, Smack One. If you're new with us, uh, my name is Tim Chiang. I'm the one, I'm oversee Smack One pastorally, and it's a pleasure to be sharing God's word with you. And we're concluding our series of 2 Samuel for this year, uh, looking at chapters 9 and 10 together. Now, uh, thank you so much for those who made it, for those who persevered, who, even if you just made it, thank you. And let's even also pray for those who are making their way on. I know there were severe challenges with road closures. Uh, yeah, and it's confusing, isn't it, when you pass somewhere and ways keeps leading you to the road that is closed. It's frustrating, isn't it? So thank you for persevering. And let's pray uh, as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word. Heavenly Father, we trust that you are in control. We trust that you have your plans and purposes for this nation and you have your plans and purposes for us here as your church. We want to entrust ourselves to you, even among this uh, uh, climate of uncertainty we find ourselves in. And help us, Lord, to, to cling to your words of eternal life that we may rightly respond to this situation around us. So help us to hear, help us to, to receive from you directly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's test this out. All right. Yeah, so I, res- I titled my sermon today, Responding Rightly to Hesed. Now, if you know English, that's not an English word, so calm down, right? It's okay. It's not an English word. Okay, it's not that your English failed you. Okay, it's a Hebrew word. Now, why did I choose that and my title, Risky Choice? Now, if you were with us uh, earlier in the series when we t- went through 2 Samuel 4 to 6, I brought this up because it was a key in that passage, and it's a key in this passage as well. This single word, hesed, unites both chapter 9 and chapter 10. Now, if you go out and look at any commentary anywhere, it'll be two separate things. Chapter 10 to 12 is its own unit, chapter 9 and before that is its own unit. But I think the word hesed rightly unites both these themes of this chapter, and you'll see where I'm going with this. Now, what does it mean? Like I said, it's not an English word, it's a Hebrew word, and it occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. Um, Sometimes it's describing human relationships, but very key is in how it describes God's love. God takes on this word to describe his love, how he is described. And the best is one Hebrew word that is rich because it doesn't translate one-to-one to English. So all these words in blue down here, you see, uh, are a concept that tie around this one word, hesed. So it's a loaded word. When the Hebrews say hesed, they mean all these things. They mean God's goodness, that his love is good. That his love is shown uh, in, in kindness. Why? Because hesed is also tied to promises. The promises God's, God makes. Promises for our good. Kind promises that is kept faithfully, steadfastly, as God doesn't change. So when he makes a promise, it doesn't change. He will keep it. And especially when those promises are made to an undeserving party. And that's us that God is still steadfast, He is kind, He is merciful, He is faithful and loyal. So when they say hesed, they're taking all these concepts of a promise-keeping, loyal God who loves in that way by keeping His promises to His people. Okay? Don't worry, you'll see how it comes up later. Okay? Now, where are we in 2 Samuel? Uh, last week, we had a combined service, which we didn't touch on 2 Samuel. So, that's two weeks ago. Maybe we need a recap. 
Uh, so we're looking at chapter 2, chapter 2 Samuel 9 to 10 today. So two weeks ago, we looked at 2 Samuel 8. What happened? Now, another way we see Hesed as primary is in how he arranged the book of 2 Samuel. So you see, 2 Samuel 8 is right after 2 Samuel 7. Oh, wow. Obviously, right? But what happened in 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7, God promised David, your throne will be established forever before me. I'll give you peace from all your enemies. It'll be a kingdom of rest and it'll be established and, and you will always have a son before me. That God promised to David, this great promise. Wow, David, your, your legacy, your throne will last forever before God. And God will not remove his presence from your throne, from your descendants, like how I removed my presence from Saul. God made that promise to David in chapter 7. So in chapter 8, what do we see? We see a thematic fulfillment of God's hesed to his promises to David. Okay? Um, this is just a recap, so don't, don't worry too much about it. But basically in chapter 8, you have all these names. You have uh, some names you, you will see again. Hadadezer of Zobah. You have the Ammonites, the Moabites, the, the Philistites, the Amalekites, the Moab, Moabites and the Edomites. All of them. Now, it's not a chronological, like, this, like right after this promise and all these battles happen but it's a thematic outline of chapter 8. And like Dinesh said it the last time, it's not chronological. But actually, if you look at the map, it's geographical. Jerusalem, David's kingdom, is right in the center. His enemies to the east, the Philistines, defeated. His enemies to the west, the Ammonites and Moabites, defeated. His enemies to the south, the Amalekites, Edomites, defeated. The enemies to the north, the Syrians, all defeated. That God grant, granted David peace to all his enemies around. And that was a fulfillment of chapter 7. God's has said. So right after that, chapter 8, okay, uh, we, we even read in chapter 8, verse 14, God gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now, of course, there's a certain way in which we know the fulfillment of this peace, God-given peace from a God-given king, will be fulfilled only in Jesus. Okay? So we're also looking forward in today's passage as well. Okay, so now we, know we are set. This is the fulfillment of this promise. What's next for us? Okay, so here's how I outlined it. Chapter 9 and chapter 10, there's two responses to Hesed in chapter 9 and chapter 10. First in chapter 9, we see Hesed received. Okay, Hesed received. And in chapter 10, we have Hesed rejected. Two different responses and we'll be going through it. So technically it's two parts. There's three mini parts in there, okay? But we won't be dwelling too long in that as the narrative. We'll be following the narrative as it flows. So if you have your Bibles with you, your service order has the whole passage, even though we just read excerpts of it. It'll be helpful for you to have it uh, at chapter 9, verse, 10, uh, verse 1, as we work our way through. Now, the main idea for us is that we respond rightly to God's hesed by gratefully loving Him, suffering for Him, and fighting for Him. And I think today's sermon, even though it wasn't prepared that way, is very timely given our climate today. Okay. So let's go straight into chapter one, verse one. Now we look what what do we see beginning chapter nine with David. Now you see, after some time on the throne, uh, David remembered the promise, an old promise to Jonathan, that he would show Hesed. Now, if you see the word steadfast love here, is the word Hesed. That David would show the steadfast love of the Lord to Jonathan. Okay, so if I, so who, who's speaking here? Jonathan is speaking. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. So David recalls 
this promise to his old friend, Jonathan, who's no longer around. And he asks, is there anyone, in verse 1, that I can still show or still do hesed to? And of course, in verses 2 and 3, we were introduced to Ziba, a slave of Saul. And, and, and also, key to note here is that David wants to show hesed of the Lord. Right? He's remembering David's, uh, Jonathan's promise. So it's not just that he made a covenant before David, but rather, he, he, he's not just showing his own personal hesed, but he's in faithfulness to God to emulate the kindness God has shown him. He's want, he wants to show the hesed of God. He wants to emulate that. So what does Ziba tell him? Well, Ziba tells him of the son of Jonathan. Up to this point in this chapter, still unnamed. We don't know who he is. So mysterious. But we have met him before. In 2 Samuel 4 verse 4. Mephibosheth, we've met him before. But for David, this is his first time hearing it. This is news to David. He didn't, he's not aware that this happened, of this, this, this man, uh, Mephibosheth. Now, just to recap a bit of your memory in, in 2 Samuel 4, what happened to this guy, Mephibosheth? Okay? Uh, that he's crippled. So remember, early on in 2 Samuel 4, early on in the struggle, uh, when news came that Saul and Jonathan died, the kings of Israel died, this Mephibosheth was the next in line to the throne. And the nurse carried five-year-old Mephibosheth and fled and in the haste dropped the child and crippled the child for life. That's our introduction to Mephibosheth. That's who he is. So he's a cripple because his father and grandfather died before he was battled. Um, and he was placed in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, uh, who later on we'll see stayed near Mahanaim. Okay, that's where uh, his uncle Ishbosheth tried to regain power. Now imagine Mephibosheth, who, putting yourself in his shoes, okay? Very, very possibly at age five, he had childhood trauma of that day, right? Severe pain and, and being crippled. And next, you're shuffled off to the side, and then your uncle gets killed. His bid for the throne uh, after a long war gets ended very abruptly, very tragically. So he's in constant fear of his life. He can't do anything about it, he's a cripple. He can't earn a living. He's at the mercy of this guy, Makir, son of Amiel. He's his sympathy, basically, but he can't do anything. And what's, what's next? You see, you hear news of David winning military victory after victory after victory and is tr truly lost and gone. So Mephibosheth would have felt left behind. Everyone's happy with David. No one needs me anymore. No one's looking for me anymore. No one needs me anymore. What am I to society? Maybe I'm useless. Maybe, you know, what you survive to the world? What's the point of my life? Now, the Bible doesn't say all this. This is just me reading into it. But I think, you know, putting ourselves in Mephibosheth's shoes, what would he be feeling all these decades as he's growing? And by this passage, he's actually a man. From five-year-old through his adolescence to his adulthood, he would have been thinking these thoughts that he is worthless, that he's not needed and that he can contribute nothing. I don't know if any of you felt that way or are feeling this way, okay? But I urge you, don't give up. Let's follow on the story, what happens next. So David uh, determines to show kindness to Mephibosheth. And here we see Hesed experienced. So unsurprisingly, when Mephibosheth appears before David, he knows that his life is forfeit. The king has found me out. The king knows where I'm staying. There's no more hiding anymore. 
So he appears before David and he prostrates face down. But what's the wonderful thing here we read? David assures him, don't fear. Do not fear. I will show kindness for the sake of your father. You see, another thing that Mephibosheth had no idea was that he had no idea that his father Jonathan and David had a covenant. He grew up not knowing that. Of course, we as readers, we knew that happened in 1 Samuel. Mephibosheth didn't know that. He would have grown up assuming that the king is out to get him. But here we see that, that, that David's offering something that happened before he was born that turned his life upside down. He went from being helpless to being honored. He went from being despised to suddenly be desired. And he, he went from being a reject of society to the height of royalty. And we must think about this. Mephibosheth didn't change. Nothing about Mephibosheth in person changed. He was still a cripple. But what changed everything was who was it that showed, uh, and the kind of regard that was shown, and by whom, that David showed high regard for him. And that is none, no less than the king of Israel himself. So very rightly, what's Mephibosheth's response? What is your servant? What am I that, that you should show such regard for a dead dog? Less, um, so doubly unclean. In Jewish society, the dead is unclean, dogs are unclean. It's like a dead dog. I'm worthless. I'm unclean. But you would gently reach down and lift me up to be seated at the royal table as an heir, a prince, as royalty. No question about it. Okay? And we see this accomplished in verses 9 to 10. So in 9 to 10, we see that David doesn't respond verbally to Mephibosheth. I mean, maybe I would like to imagine that he, maybe he smiles at him and just straight goes to Ziba and says, Ziba, carry out all my orders. Restore the lands. You are his servant. Work the lands. But Mephibosheth, your master now, will be always at my table. Now, we learn in verse 10 that Ziba is actually a man of means. During this time when Mephibosheth was away, Ziba was not idle. He was working the lands. He was having 15 sons and 20 servants. He became a rich man during this time um, from the proceeds of the lands that belonged to Saul. But now, he's assigned as a servant to Mephibosheth. Okay? So, we end our story here with Mephibosheth status changing from being cursed to blessed, implied by when he had a son. Right? In Samuel, we've seen multiple times how having a son, having a child, having a means blessing. Okay? Uh, and, and that he lived in Jerusalem, always ate the king's table, and reiterated again, he was lame in both feet. Nothing about Mephibosheth changed, but everything changed because of who loved him. Now, put a pin in this, and I'd like to just give you a glimpse of what's coming up next. Now, David's generous love for Mephibosheth changed Mephibosheth forever. How do we know this? You see, much later on, in chapter 16 to 19 of 2 Samuel, you see David's favorite son, Absalom, starts a rebellion and kicks David out of Jerusalem. Okay? This is later. Just to give you background. And, and, and Ziba comes to meet David outside of Jerusalem and says, Mephibosheth stayed in Jerusalem. He defected to your son, Absalom. So David, you know, trusting the messenger, says, okay, fine. Ziba, now you have total control of the lands. 
eventually Absalom dies, all right? And, and spoiler alert, he dies, sorry. If you're spoiling it for next year's series. But <laughs> Absalom dies, and David comes back to Jerusalem. And upon return to Jerusalem, we find out Mephibosheth did stay in Jerusalem, but come on, like, he's crippled, he can't move, right? And, but what, what do we, we, how do we find him? He's in mourning, he's grieving that David had to flee. From the time David fled Jerusalem, Mephibosheth didn't keep his, I mean, he, he, he was grieving, he didn't keep his hair, he didn't wash his feet, until the day David returned. Now, David, and then he, he sees these two conflicting accounts, so he says, okay, fine, I'll just separate the land between you and Ziba, that you guys sort it out. And Mephibosheth amazingly responds, oh Lord, let him have it all. Let him have all the land. I don't want it. I just want you to be safe. I'm just glad that you are safe. And that's the love that Mephibosheth has for David because of this act. Mephibosheth was not unchanged by this. So we come to our first principle, which is that how do we respond to God's grace. God has said to us. And I think that the perils are very clear here, isn't it? Like Mephibosheth, we are helpless to save ourselves. No matter how strong or how capable you may think you are, the Bible tells us we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't bring ourselves to the level of holiness God needs us to. That, and not just that we, we cannot save ourselves, that we are enemies of the king. That all of humanity, the state that we were born into, is a state of rebellion against the God who created us. And we look out in the world today, and that's exactly that what's going on. The world is in rebellion against God. But because of a promise that God made before we were born, before we were aware of it, God has promised to save us, to provide a way, and that He took the initiative to find a way to bring us back to Him by sending Jesus to come into humanity, born as a man, the only sinless human, to join with us to die the death that we should have died as enemies of God by being hung on the cross. That Jesus humbled himself so completely so that he could save everyone, that everyone, all societies, wherever you are from, you can look to Jesus and be saved. And when Jesus rose from the grave three days later, all who believe in him have been raised with him. And the Bible tells us that we who believe in him, we are now sons of God. And that we will dwell and, and sit with the table of the Almighty as his sons. Do we deserve that? No. No. No more than Mephibosheth. From helpless sinners to honored sons from despised to desired, from rejected to royalty. And our response, I hope, will be the same as Mephibosheth. Who am I? Lord, that, that you who created heaven and earth would enter into our pain and suffering that would be abandoned and die for our sake to save us. Why would God set us set me as the object of his hesed. No reason, but that he wanted to. So how will we respond to such a great demonstration of his love? Today, if you have not responded, if, if Jesus is no one, not your Lord, I invite you, believe in him and you will be his child. That we rightly respond to God's hesed by gratefully loving for him. Okay? But as we have seen, that's not the only response available to Hesed, isn't it? And we see in chapter 10. 
So next we see a different response to Hesed. So like chapter 9, it begins very much like chapter 9. It begins with David wanting to show Hesed to someone. Here, deal loyally, the word for loyalty here in the, in the Hebrew text is Hesed again. And who is it? It's the king of the Ammonites. Who are the Ammonites? Well, the Ammonites are like the Moabites, cousins. They are descendants of Lot. Okay? So they are related to the Israelites in some way. Um, and we've seen Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, earlier on in 1 Samuel 11. Okay? But, and that, in that chapter, he's, a, he's an enemy. Let's put it that way. He wants to destroy um, the Israelite town of Gilead. So here's the thing. Um, disclaimer, we do not know what kindness or what loyalty did Nahash show to David. We don't know. Okay, there's no proof of it in the Bible. Uh, we can guess, but that's about it. Okay, so I won't guess into that. We only know that because David says so. Okay, so what does David do? In sincerity, he sends comforters to the new king, Hanun, whose name ironically means grace. But what happens the prince of Ammonites, basically the generals, said to their king, hey, you think David wants to help you, is it? No. He's here to suss you out. He's here to spy on you so that he can invade you. Sounds familiar? This is exactly what Joab said of Abner, isn't it? So they were skeptical. Again, remember, they were cousins of Moab. And very, I mean, here's me guessing, all right? Likely, uh, the battle with Moab in chapter 8 happened already. And they saw how David decimated the Moabites. It's like, and the Moabites are just south of them, if you remember the map just now, right? So, whoa, our cousins, Moabites, this David, uh, bad news. He lined up three lines, killed two lines, saved one line. Who? okay? He's, he's here to conquer. <laughs> but I, I think that it's very likely that they're projecting what they would do onto David, okay? And that, 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 to them, they're being skeptical. It says more about them than it says about David. And, and David was sincere. We, by all means, we know that he's sincere. What did, they, what did they do? They treat David's envoys with hostility. They shave off half the beard. Now, I mean, Chinese, we can't leave beards. I'm so sorry. We can't. I, I wish I could to my wife's chagrin, but we can't, right? But they shave the beard very lightly half this way. Just shave half the face. It's like you cut half some of hair, right? In, in school, if you leave you know, long hair, then the headmaster comes and shave half your hair. You go shave it all off, right? It's shamed. And they cut their garments. Now, no matter how it is, there's debates about that, but what the point is, they were greatly shamed, walking half naked. It's either the behind is exposed or the front is exposed. Either way, bad news, right? And that's how they treat the ambassadors. Okay? And they send them off. So, an act of hostility, and the act of, the, an act of hostility on the ambassador, very likely is an act of hostility on the nation they represent, isn't it? So that's what we'll see. Uh, but before that, we go that. It was told to David what happened. So David actually sent men to intercept these ambassadors, these envoys, to tell them, stay in Jericho. Let your beards grow back up. Of course, you know, clothes grow it not. Very easy to remedy clothes up. Just beard have to grow, right? This is the kindness of David to them. Now Jericho is at the foot of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's on a mountain. And Jericho is at the foot of that hill. So Jericho to Jerusalem. Uphill, downhill. Okay? Stay there, grow back, only come back to court. Okay? So David's kindness to his envoys. Now this is relevant later during application, okay? But we move on. So war has been declared. Initiated by David? Not really. We'll see. So if the text is a bit too small, I'll refer to your Bibles in your service order, okay? We're at uh, verse 6. And when the Ammonites saw that they had become uh, a stench to David, that they have offended them, but 
Seriously, what do they think would happen, right? Come on. Uh, they amassed a large army. And they even had troops further north. So here's a map. Okay? So, oh, can't really see the laser. But yeah, from Jerusalem at the bottom left corner. And Rabbah is the capital of the Ammonites. You see that green square? That's where the Ammonites are. And Syria, or in the Bible verse, is actually Aram. Okay? It's all the way north, further north, very wide. It's not a single nation. It's a coalition of nations. So from different, different uh, Syrian or Aramic, Aramean um, armies, they draw tens of thousands of troops to gather and muster at Rabbah. Now again, I personally think that they were projecting onto David what they think they would do. It says more about them than about David. Because up to this point, David just is concerned about his envoys. He's not, you know, his first thing is like, oh, you insulted me, let's get and go up and get them. No. His first concern is for his people. Right? But it's only when they start to amass troops and David finds out and says, no, we can't ignore this threat anymore. We have to deal with it. So he sends, and he doesn't send the full force, he just sends Joab and his best uh, soldiers, best troops, uh, his mighty men, to, conform, to, to confront them. And this is the beginning of the Israel-Ammonite war. Now, just some things to see to expectations for later, okay? Chapter 10 begins the, the Israel-Ammonite war and it only ends in chapter 12. Okay? You, if you look ahead, you can see at the end of chapter 12, the Ammonites are defeated. Wait, huh? I accidentally pressed. Okay. The Ammonites are defeated. And in between 10 to 12, you have the setting of chapter 11, which is David's sin with Bathsheba. Just a note, okay? There's a the bigger frame that's going on. Okay? But we just look at the war that as, it, as, it, as it's unpacked here, okay? Now, how does the battle unfold? Very, very cheeky, very exciting one. Okay, you see, yeah? There's a lot of verses there. Let me just summarize it. They come, Joab and his armies come to the city. The Ammonites all in the city arrayed. But their backup, the Syrians, are in the open country and they come behind uh, Joab and Abishai. So they realize that they're squeezed in the middle. Okay? It's a very bad kind of sandwich. So what happens? Joab chooses a few men. I will face the, the Syrians outside, Abishai, his brother. You face the, the Ammonites inside the city. Okay? Long story short, Joab chases the Syrians away. Once the Ammonites see that, oh, their backup support, all Lari already. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, they, they run back into the city and then they, they, bunk, they bunker down. Okay? And then we read that uh, Joab returns back. But then, before we go on there, verse 12 is key. Joab tells his brother, be of good courage. Let us be courageous. Be strong. Be strong and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. That they were finding their strength in who they were fighting for. The truth of who that they were here for. That, and Joab was resting his hope that God would do what is right. So here there's a balance. There's a surrender that God would do what seems right to him. We're here for God. Okay? We are here for His sake, for His people, for His name. There's surrender, there's trust in God. But there's also fight with all your strength. Use strategy, use your God-given gifts, apply it. There's a balance there in Joab's approach here. Okay? That I think has implications for us that we will draw on later as well. Okay? So, like I said, they fled before him and then uh, presumably, Abishai maintains a, a siege in the Ammonite city, and we leave the Ammonites for now. We'll pick them up later in chapter 12. 
but Joab returns to Jerusalem. Okay? Now, what happens next? Next, it's not the, the Ammonites anymore. Now it's the Syrians. What did they do? They realized that they, 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 uh, they were licking their wounds. They lost face. They, they lost the battle, even though they were hired to do so. So they went to, instead, rather than uh, you know, just stopping it for now, they doubled down. Okay, they doubled down. What did they do? They went even further north to gather even further reinforcements. So zoom out a bit. Up in the top corner, I'm not sure you can see it, there's a river there. And that's the river Euphrates. That's how far away it is. So when it says that Hadadezer went and gathered troops from beyond the river, that's what he's talking about. Okay? That, um, perhaps you're thinking, we lost to a small nation. We didn't even lose to the full army, right? Uh, so they, they gathered reinforcements. Now, Hadadezer appeared to be a local king. We know he's king over Zobah, but he appeared to be a local king over the uh, further regions and he gathered his influences. And we read of this in chapter 8, uh, by the way. Okay? So another um, proof that chapter 8 is not chronological because this battle is encapsulated within chapter 8. Then on this time, when the Syrians gather at a place called Haram, Helam, sorry, David enters the fray personally with the armies of God. And of course, David wins the battle. Okay? This battle uh, already summarized, like I said, in chapter 8, verses 3 to 8. So David kills the Syrian general Shobak and all the, 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 the vassal kings, the kings that were under Hadadezer, made peace with Israel, became subject to them, and never helped the Ammonites again. Okay? So how, what do we take from this? Now, we've seen how when we truly understand the hesed that God has shown for us, that he has made us the objects of his hesed, the right response is to believe in him, to receive it, to respond in gratitude and in love. But here in chapter 10, we see a different response, um, one that always assumes the worst, one that seeks to be endlessly skeptical towards God. And this says more about those who reject God than about God himself, isn't it? Now make no mistake, this is the world's chosen response towards God. And God will respond to their rejection adequately. He will not let it by. God will come, he will defeat them, and he will subjugate them because God is the rightful creator and Lord that every knee and every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how do we respond rightly to Hesed? Number one, don't reject him. It's freely offered to you. Receive it. Don't reject it. But chapter 10 offers some more specific uh, applications for us today as Malaysians. We are ambassadors of Christ. And we are sent into a world that rejects Christ's kingship. Do not think that we will or that we should have a good time. That as, we, that as, as differences come out in terms of where we stand, in terms of God's truth on what sex is, sexuality is, on the rights of the unborn child, as, as we differ on those key issues that they think, they assume everyone agrees. No, God says no. As we appear faithful, as we show that no, there's only one way of salvation, that's through Jesus Christ alone, they won't like us. They may even shame us. They may even make life tough 
for us. We do not know what lies ahead, brothers and sisters. But what we do know from church history, from the norm has been for God's church to suffer. But the assurance is that our King has said to us, He will not forget us, that in our suffering, as we suffer for Him, He uh, will not forget us, and that He will win in the end. Another image is that of spiritual battle. We fight, yes, we, we fight, uh, some of us lying long queues, that's a fight, is it, to, to vote? Um, it's not just about that fight, but we're called to fight a spiritual battle. And that the Bible tells us that we're not fighting on home soil, but we're fighting on enemy territory. We are outmatched, we're outgunned, we're outsmarted. The enemy is more numerous than us, he's more influential than us, and the enemy is more crafty and ancient than us. But we do not fight by ourselves or even for ourselves, for our survival even, no. The Christian life is a call to fight, not by the might of our arms, but by the might of our faith. Like Joab, we surrender everything to God. We pray as if the outcome totally depends on God because it does. But the way we engage with the world is not passive, laid back and doing nothing, but actively using the gifts that God has given us. We engage. We fight as if it depends on us, even though it doesn't. And how do we strengthen ourselves? We strengthen ourselves by reminding ourselves who we are doing it for. Why are we out in the world for? Why are we facing our friends and family, the world outside? Not for us, not for our children, not for our family or our comfort. I hope that the reason that you and I will be fighting when we leave here will be for Christ and Christ alone. Sometimes the fight may look like struggling to come here on a Sunday morning, persevering despite the endless, pointless directions from ways that you want to chuck ways out the window. When, when life becomes frustrating with Christian and Christian relationships, when you get hurt by other Christians, sometimes fighting to, to come for the weekly Bible study in GGs, when you just feel like you had a long day at work and you just don't feel like showing up. Fighting for, for being faithful in your job and vocation where God has called you to. To, to be bold. To, to make statements that you know will not be popular. But that when an opportunity comes to lead those conversations to the gospel, even though there may be risks. To be a bold witness. No matter what people may think about you, for proclaiming, inviting them. Christmas is coming. To invite them and tell them about the gospel, your neighbours, your families and friends. And last but not least, more insidiously, something that I was facing myself is a fight to realize that this is not our home. And that translates to how we think about our role here as Malaysians, as Christians, about how we hold on to our possessions. It's not ours. That the enemy will seek to distract you by, by, by sidelining you with these things, by a dis political disappointments by material comfort, by the threat of safety that will no longer exist. And brothers and sisters, the call is to be faithful because our God is faithful. So my prayer for us is that on that day, when we stand before the throne, we won't be found wanting, but rather 
will be faithful because He is faithful. And it's not something we can do. Uh, I'm not saying this as one who has done it. I'm, I'm one very much uh, struggling to, do, to be faithful as well. But hopefully, with God's help, we can do it together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how your word is applicable to our lives and what we're facing now. Now more than ever, Lord, we need your hesed. We need to, be, we need to remind ourselves, O oh Lord, of how you have shown us love, us being your enemies, now seated at your table. Help us, O oh Lord, to be grateful. Help us, O oh Lord, to not be forgetful, to forget all your goodness upon us. And help us, O Lord, remind us once again, Lord, draw us once again to each other as we encourage one another to be living in this world, not for our sake, but for your sake. And help us to be faithful as we do so, weak as we are. And help us, O Lord, to have courage. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.